Hello and welcome to Unit on Chain, a podcast series from Unit London. My name is Abigail Miller and I'm the Associate Director of Web3 at Unit London. Unit on Chain offers a ground for critical discussions for artists and thought leaders from the Web3 ecosystem. Season one of our podcast coincides with In Our Code, a highly anticipated exhibition of generative and digital art in partnership with AOI. On display from September 13th to October 15th, exclusively at Unit London. In today's episode, Casey Reed and Douglas Dock talk about the history of art and technology, roles of museum and universities educating the public, and how the ecosystem will develop. Keep listening to find out more. Casey Reese is an artist and a professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. Working with various mediums, including works on paper, software, prints, and installation, he balances his solo work in the studio with collaborations with architects and musicians alike. His most iconic series to date, called Process, the artist explores the linguistic process of translating English instructions into computer code. With Ben Fry, he initiated processing in 2001, an open source programming language and environment for visual arts. Douglas Dodds is a former senior curator in the Word and Image Department at the Victoria and Albert Museum of London, where he was responsible for developing the department's digital art collections, which ranged from early computer art to the most recent foreign digital works. He curated exhibitions including Chips and Control, Art in the Age of Computers, Barbara Nessum in Artful Life, Visual Pioneers, and The Book and Beyond. Today, we welcome them both to Unit on Chain. So welcome to you on Shane. Today we have two legends, the artist Casey Reese, as well as Douglas Dodds, who is the former senior curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Welcome both. Hello, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So kind of one of the first topics I want to just jump straight into is the history of digital art. And both of you have discussed this extensively. And I wanted to pose our first question to you, Douglas, about the origin of digital art. People kind of assume it started yesterday. And you kind of, I believe, quoted a lot of people often say like five to 10 years ago, but we all know this isn't the case. And can you kind of give a baseline to you when digital art started and when you saw it kind of emerge? You're absolutely right. Um, most people tend to think that digital art started just a few years before they started it, but in practice, it goes back a very long time, at least 50 years or more. And really, if you're looking at what we think of now as digital computers, then I would say in the late 50s or early 1960s is probably the point that I would start with, but you could arguably take it back much further than that. So who are kind of some of those examples of artists that created that foundation? Some of the very earliest ones were working with what we call analog computers rather than modern digital computers. And I think of people like Herbert Franke, who basically switched from analog computing to digital computing, or perhaps people like Ben Leposky, who was a photographer experimenting with some early oscilloscopes. But the earliest people creating images with digital computers were, for example, Georg Nies in Germany or Frieda Narker in Germany, or perhaps Michael Knoll uh, working for Bell Labs in the US. And these were all starting to happen in the early 1960s. Yeah. And 
Casey, I wanted to kind of bring you into this discussion. I think it was in 2015, our team was just listening to your speech at the Gray Area Festival. I think it was titled History of the Future, Art and Technology from 1965 to Yesterday. And you kind of discussed like the relatively short history of programming. And you quoted, I think it was Eric Raymond, about the real programmer versus the amateur versus the hybrid programmer. And I was just wondering if you could briefly discuss kind of in the history of digital art alongside programming and how did it look of these artists acting in the 1960s alongside what was going on in the tech side? Sure, sure. We'll do a little bit of time traveling. Like originally computers were people. They were people who calculated. And as Douglas said, they were analog computers before they were the digital computers that we have now. And so the origin of programming digital computers very much grew out of science and technology development. And what happened over time, over decades, is that amateurs started to get into programs. When microcomputers started to be distributed, they entered the home in the 1970s, children began to learn computers. There were specific programming languages, one called BASIC, developed in the 1960s to teach liberal arts students how to think about software, to think about code. And so code evolved from being something that was very professionally focused towards uh, research, towards industry, to something that was really a way of thinking, that was a way of um, moved into forms of expression. I think of coding very much like writing, like we learn to write, we learn to express ourselves through language in the same way we learn how to write technically and coding is the same. They're this new way of coding that's, that's about thinking about the visual arts grew out of that. And I think this radical idea of the amateur that grew out of the home computing movement was really much the source for that. Super interesting. So back to you, Douglas, with this, kind of those leading figures of the 1960s and 70s, did they, would you say, were really programmers and technologists first? Or did they kind of move into this hybrid that Casey's talking about back then? Was that when the shift was or was that later on? Well, the shift probably took place at the end of the 1960s. But as I was saying, really the very earliest people who were creating the images were scientists, were mathematicians, were other prototype programmers. Uh, Georg Nies was, Frieda Narka was, Michael Null was. And really it was only slightly later that people who had a trained artistic background started to experiment with computing too. You know, there were many artists in the 60s who were used to working in a systematic way, using a set of rules to create the artwork. And for some of them, at least, it was the natural next step to progress to using a computer system instead of just some sort of logic of their own to create the artwork. And um, perhaps some of the earliest examples of that was created by Vera Molnar in Paris and uh, Manfred Moore, who was also in Paris at much the same time, 1968, 1969. So they suddenly had access to big computer systems in uh, universities or meteorological institutes, the places that could afford to have them. And they managed to wangle their way in and actually start to use them to create artistic works. Super interesting. Computers at that time were so inaccessible. There's this wonderful video that Douglas showed in an exhibit he created a number of years ago of, made in the 1960s by German television of Frieder Nake going through the process of making some of its drawings. You know, And it starts by making diagrams on paper and then punch cards go into a machine and a tape comes out of that machine 
the tape goes into like a two-ton drawing machine. The drawing machine produces the drawing. But until that moment when the zoo's graphomat, the drawing machine, produced the drawing, Frieder didn't know exactly what he was going to see. And the only reason he had access to those machines was the institutional affiliation. And so um, people like Vera Molnar and Manfred Moore, they really needed to seek out a way to use these machines. It was very prohibitive. And so what happened over time is the machines became more accessible and a few dozen artists exploring them became hundreds, became thousands. And so now we have you know, hundreds of thousands of artists who have access and are exploring the space. Yeah, that's very much the difference. Yeah, and I think we often think of generative art today as just using computers. But can both of you speak to like the different machines that have been used in generative art and kind of the relationship to the analog? Because I think, Casey, you talked about laser machines. Um, We were just listening to a talk about laser machines you gave, as well as plotters, and how artists back then used those too. Yeah, yeah. Like in the day before we had screens like we do now, the way that artists would create their images was through these plotting machines, which were basically these like large mechanical machines that were able to move a pen on an x-axis and a y-axis and move it down and then pick it up and move it from somewhere else from there. That was the way that the work was made. And then over time, those plotting machines became more accessible. But then people moved into displaying work on screen and producing work for CD-ROM using programs like HyperCard, which was on the early Macintosh. And then the World Wide Web hits, becomes international and surges in the mid-1990s. And it's just unfolding of unfolding of a different medium. One thing I just want to say quickly is that I don't make a distinction with generative art of people using computers and people not using computers. As Douglas was saying, there's a tradition, particularly in the 1960s, of painters and composers using generative systems for making work. And I think what was so exciting was the generation of people who had been trained as artists, had existing practices, and started to begin using software and computers because it helped them extend their ideas. It was like an organic and natural part of their work. Yes, indeed. Yeah, going back to the 1960s, again, one of the first uses of the term generative in an art context seems to have been by a German philosopher called Max Benzer. And Benzer was basically the supervisor for Georg Nies as PhD. And uh, Friedrich Narker also went along to his lectures. And it was Benzer who developed this idea of what he called generative aesthetics, really is the precursor to what we now call generative art. So, you know, that whole thing you can also trace back right the way to the 1960s. Friedrich Narker, for example, he was the first person to program a drawing machine to work with a particular computer. And he was therefore also the first person to produce the artworks that came out of that system, came off the drawing machine. So that was a big moment. For me, it's a bit like the switch from printed manuscripts to early printed books. It's a whole new technology that's coming in that replaces the old technology. But in the early days, there's quite a crossover and people are using some of the same sort of concepts, the same techniques, because they're familiar with them, and they try and make them work in the new system instead. Certainly there was a lot of that in the 1960s, people producing things that were produced by the computer, but were not that different to the things that were being produced before. 
Yeah. So the 1960s has been a decade of topic, it seems like. And I know there's been quite a few famous exhibitions that happened during this era. Like, I think in 1968, if I'm correct, that's when cybernetic serendipity happened. And Douglas, can you talk about some of the exhibitions that have made these movements? Yeah, well, as you say, Cybernetic Serendipity was one of the first major exhibitions that was devoted to the computer and art making. It wasn't just about computers, but it certainly was one of the first occasions when they were shown and when the work of the artists was shown. So that had a big impact on people at the time. It has to be said that the exhibition itself had quite mixed reviews. You know, some people were raving about it and went off and became computer artists, digital artists, as we now call them. Other people thought it was basically just piles of trash, really, and they couldn't see any art in it at all. So, you know, people were starting from different points. But certainly at that period in the late 1960s, there were several exhibitions that, that happened. So there were several exhibitions, including Cybernetic Serendipity. 1968 in particular was quite an important year. There was a show and a seminar in Zagreb called Tendencies 4. There was an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York called The Machine. And as a spin-off from that, a group called Experiments in Art and Technology went on to produce another show called Some More Beginnings, which was an art and science collaboration. And then a year or so later, there was another one came along called Software, also in New York. So, you know, it's very much a sort of zeitgeist around at that time. And all the exhibitions were probably a bit mixed in their content, but it was the beginning of a new a new era in art as well as in everything else. So it was a quite important time. Yeah, I want to shift the conversation to like institutions and how it's kind of helped or just your general opinions about our institutions like museums, as well as Casey graduating from the MIT Media Lab. What was that like? And how do you think educational institutions also play a role um, in these movements? It's really interesting. I think any answer to that question is wrapped up in a lot of the other conversations that we've been having and probably will continue to have for the next short amount of time. I think in general, if we talk about those shows that Douglas just mentioned, software was more underdeveloped at that time, I would say, than machines, than objects, than electronics. And so a lot of that early work was sculptural. It was integrating electronics and sensors into mechanical systems. And the software was a little bit less developed at that time. And I think what we're seeing right now, of course, is this huge surge in, in the software at the moment in a unique way. I think this is sort of the first time that there's been such a strong focus on the generative visual software. But the long rocky road in the history of getting to where we are right now has included a lot of institutional support. And I think particularly in Europe, there's been a lot of government funding in establishing different festivals that have really been the seeds and the origins for promoting young artists and for a community. We talked about Herbert Franke a little bit earlier as one of the co-founders of the Ars Electronica Center in Austria. has been a, a major supporter of the broadest range of media art and electronic art over the years. And yes, so if we talk about academics and universities, the MIT Media Lab is the sort of origin point for me. And there I was working in a group called the Aesthetics and Computation Group that was founded by John Maeda who was an artist slash computer scientist. That's, once again, this idea of the hybrid. And that was a really small group. There were only six of us graduate students, and we all came from different areas, architecture, math, design, art. 
And the idea was to explicitly state stated to invent a new culture, a way of making a hybrid between the ideas around computer science, that way of thinking, and an expanded visual art space. And so we basically sat in a room um, and made things and did collaborations and worked individually. It was a it was a really productive time. Is that where you met Ben Fry? Is that correct? It's true. Yeah, that's where I, I met Ben Fry. And then John Maeda had us both working on a project that he was developing called Design by Numbers, which was a very explicitly minimal coding language for visual designers and artists. It was 100 by 100 pixels. It was grayscale. It was meant to be minimal so that it was approachable. The different ways of programming, you would sort of set the paper color and then you would draw a line. And that was 100% the origin for the processing project. Ben and I were working on that basically under John. We saw firsthand, you know, doing a workshop at RISD, how you could sit a group of art students in a room, students who'd never written code before, and they could start making things, you know, within an hour or two and get really engaged with it. And so processing grew out of design by numbers, basically by removing some of those limitations, removing the low resolution and the grayscale only. And also just it's important to say that all of the work in processing also goes back to other legacy at uh, the MIT Media Lab to Muriel Cooper's group, which was called the Visual Language Workshop, which was prior to the Aesthetics and Computation group. And so basically, they were a group of hybrids, a group of coder artists, coder filmmakers who had been developing infrastructure for years. And the whole point of the processing project was to get that infrastructure out of that institution and into the world at scale so that other people could begin to experiment and explore coding as a visual art form. And for the audience, just real quickly, can you give a statement of what processing actually is if they're not familiar with it? Yes, of course. It's, it's a little bit hard to pin down because it's many things sort of fused together. So it's a coding environment. It's, it's sort of a way of, of writing code, of writing the text that then runs. But it's also a language adaptation as well on top of an existing language called Java. So it looks and feels different. But I think maybe to take a step back, the whole point of processing is to write code to make images. And so the whole history of programming education is using code to work with text or using code to work with math. And so the idea that code is a general way of thinking, let's take what's so interesting and powerful and extraordinary about this way of thinking about making things and apply it to making images as the first and foremost way. I think for context, what you would often do is you'd have many computer science classes and then you would be able to get into graphics. And the idea of, of processing is that you get right into what's exciting and interesting about coding, but you do it the entire time through making images and through animation and through interactivity. Yeah, super interesting. And to me, it's almost as the artist is operating a different thought space from creating the artwork today and coding. And I see like a really, to me, there's a shift in how an artist might approach subject. And there's this continuity from the history. But Douglas, I wanted your opinion on the use of coding in art today. And if you've seen any major changes, even from like the 80s, 90s, and then to today with coding in the artwork. I'm so sorry. Before we do that, could I just like follow up on a thought from the last thing? Of course. I'm sorry, Douglas. The way that things happen in the university and education system in general often is that people get forked into art or into coding. 
And there's very few opportunities for those things to be hybrid. And so what's, what I find so exciting about what's going on right now with generative art is you have people coming from traditional art backgrounds, you have people coming from coding backgrounds, and they meet in this space. And like what I've found over the decades is that if people have that desire, they do eventually find their way there, but it usually involves a complete art degree or computer science degree, and then time outside of the university to kind of be able to, to bend towards the other. So it's, it's a hybrid space that is basically, it's difficult to get to because there, there aren't many ways that are, you know, institutionalized to do that. I was going to go back to that question about education and, you know, access to computers and so on as well, because again, if you look back to um, what was going on in the late 60s, early 1970s, in the UK at least, there were quite big changes in the education system. And the former colleges of technology were merging with former colleges of art. So suddenly you had all these artists alongside all these people who knew about computing. And many uh, universities in the UK were centers of art computing as a result of those mergers. So if you think about the Slade School of Art in London, where Harold Cohen went, or you think about Coventry University, where several artists went, these people had access to computers for the first time, and they came at it with a creative mind. And the scientists, the computer programmers, if they, if they were smart, were very glad to have them because it you know, was another Another reason for having big computers in universities. So that was the history of it. But more recently, again, you see those sort of overlaps and those collaborations and um, whole groups of people emerging to do research in particular areas. And a lot of scientists are desperate to have artists to visualize the work that they're doing. So, you know, it, it benefits everyone to, to be able to do that. Yeah, definitely. How do you think then the role recently, I would say like the last five years of the NFT in the blockchain has either kind of going back to you, Casey, forked people or brought people together in this space? It's definitely brought people together in a, I would say, unprecedented way from all different corners of, of the internets. You know, NFTs have folded in, you know, people working with focusing on like 3D rendering and animation, people working with illustration, with photography, with poetry, with generative art, what we're talking about more directly today. And I think from my experience, those were all sort of separated communities. And now everything's flowing together. I think people are crossing with other people that they hadn't met before. Who And it's the most dynamic time that I've ever been around on the internet for software-oriented, digitally-oriented art. And Douglas, in one of your talks, you have kind of mentioned digital art as a whole, or computer art has traditionally been snubbed by the art world. Why do you think this? And do you think with NFTs, it will continue that pattern? Or is that kind of revolutionizing how people are viewing this? Well, it's true that in the 1960s, the few artists that were involved with computers really struggled to get their work accepted. And they also struggled, of course, to survive, to make money from it. And um, some of them played around with different models for how to, to sell their artworks. You know, And it's the same story today, really. Do you produce one thing and sell it for a lot of money, if you can sell it at all? Or do you produce many things like prints and sell them for a smaller amount, but still end up with a large amount of income? In the early days, they were lucky if they had any income at all. So with the um, emergence of the NFT space now, it throws up whole new possibilities, not just for you know younger artists who natives of this space, but also the older generation of artists who are, in some cases at least, starting to migrate their work 
from the previous medium, whatever that was, into a, an NFT format instead. So you're actually seeing people reselling things that they've produced before and possibly even sold before in a different uh, medium. The irony of it for me is that sometimes the NFTs are actually um, going for more than the original artworks, you know, the, the hard copy or even the file, the software that they might have produced um, some years ago. That's so a very dynamic area, as, as Casey said. It's a very interesting space to be in, but it's hard to know quite how it's all going to settle out. Yeah, definitely. And Casey, for you, like what has been your personal experience with this then as an artist who's been creating kind of before blockchain really got integrated in as a mechanism to sell things? That's a really thorny one to try and answer in a direct way. <laughs> it's, yeah, it it's been, you know, two years of roller coaster, emotional, intellectual engagement. I think I can like, maybe give one anecdote that for me is quite interesting. Like I developed a piece of software called the Path software, which is basically drawing software in the early 2000s. And, you know, at the, at the time that was produced, it wouldn't run in real time. Like what I was really excited about it was the animation, was the way that it morphed and moved and changed over time. And so at that moment, it became a series of like print editions back in 2002. And then I sort of revived that, worked on that again, maybe eight years ago, and presented it as a full wall uh, projection inside of a gallery. And for me, that was a, a really wonderful way of dematerializing the work, having it really be focused on the system itself and the, the quality of the motion and the gestures of the lines, which is what that work was primarily about, these sort of um, systems-based drawings. But then recently, I re-explored that again as an NFT. And I think for me, the difference is, instead of having like one version of the software that contained everything, now I had 1,000 different versions of the software and each one had its own signature or its own sort of distinct thumbprint or, or mark. And for me, it, it felt really good to have this split, like longer form version that more people could have a relationship with and association with rather than existing as an installation in a gallery in one point in space for like a month of time. So that's growth that I'm really excited about. Super interesting. And when creating like a long form genitive artwork, do you think it's a different space you occupy as almost as an artist in creating? Uh, like, because you don't think about a singular piece almost. Like, a very, you again think about a thousand to unlimited possibilities. Is that kind of a different for you? For me, the, the only reason I got into writing code, making generative art in the first place was the multitudes. It was the idea. I think more important than the image, it was the idea that what I'm seeing right now has never been seen before and is never going to be seen again. And so that's always how I've thought about the work. In the past, when I would make a singular piece of code, then it would be more of a durational experience and you wouldn't be able to see as much of the space of exploration at one time. So I think it's in a way it's made it more defined and focused and pointed what the work has always been about. Maybe it was a bit obscured before, but for me, there's been no shift. That's always been the, the nature of the, of the ideas around the work. Very cool. I want to shift the conversation to the exhibition here at Unit London titled In Our Code. And just to give the audience a little background information, Douglas Dodds here has written a beautiful forward that will be published online as well. Um, you can pick up physically in the gallery at the catalog. And Casey Reese is exhibiting in the show, which is extremely exciting. And the show here at Unit London has brought together 11 generative artists, generative art pieces, and we're just specifically discussing the relationship of input output and kind of framing generative art, not as 
a movement, but as kind of a medium as well. And giving maybe the art audience that doesn't know the technicalities of code a different way to view the artwork. And I wanted to ask both of you in today's landscape, how important it is to have like in-person exhibitions, physical exhibitions with digital artwork. Because I think a very big trend, especially during COVID, when everyone was stuck at home, was viewing all this work on the computer and kind of what you guys look for in exhibition and where you see that moving to in the future. Well, uh, for me, I, I still appreciate the physical element in, in artworks. So the opportunity to be able to see the, the artworks in a physical form, in a physical space, is actually really important and brings something to it that you basically don't always get um, online, particularly if the artwork you know, is derived from something physical or is meant to be shown on something physical. Even that, that physical thing is, is just a, a monitor or the way the artwork reacts to a particular space. So that's a very important aspect of it. But I think the other thing that's really crucial is the curation that goes into it. First of all, the selection, but also the way in which the artworks are displayed. So exhibitions like this one are absolutely vital for that reason alone. And Casey, I'd love for you to speak about your work in the show as well. Yeah, certainly. I also just wanted to agree with what Douglas just said. That was well put. Another piece of it for me is experiencing the work with other people, being with people while you're looking at work, talking about it, experiencing it together. Um, this idea, and that's something that has been lost, and I'm so excited that we're, we're beginning to experience together. So sorry, Abigail, you wanted me to speak a little briefly about the work in the show? Yeah, because I think one of the beautiful things about this show is with genitive art, there is so many, I would say, like different niches of genitive art. For example, like Sophia Crespo and Helena Saran, they operate with Gone, like artificial intelligence, which really differs from your artistic practice. And so I'd love for you to give an opportunity to the audience that's listening to kind of talk about the story of your work, since it also relates to the kind of conversation you've had today about the history of genitive art since it plays for the past on the project of yours. Wonderful. So the reason I started writing code in the beginning was because I wanted a new way of drawing. I had been drawing. That was really my primary medium, my way into the visual arts. And I had ideas for kinds of drawings that I wanted to make that I just, I felt, well, I knew they, they weren't possible to realize any other way. And so like when I started art school, I had two years without a computer, just my generation. And so I spent a lot of time drafting, working with pen and working with ink and producing work that way. And for me, the work in the show is an extension of that drafting. Um, it's the code that I wrote to draft and explore drawing in a way that I couldn't in any other way. And so it's based on these you know, forms of geometry, a circle with different behaviors, the way the circle moves, and when it overlaps with another circle, the way it behaves. And that's the base layer sort of beneath everything. And then the drawing forms on top of that diagram layer. And the works in this show are not real-time works, but I think of it as synthetic photography. And so it's looking at the drawings and then selecting one. And so I run it with many different seeds and see how it grows in different ways. There's a strong organic feeling and quality to this work. It's very much about sort of a software environments in an abstracted micro world way. And then I kind of go down different trees and make selections from there. And so I think of this work as photography, but it's photography from a, a complete world that I've sort of imagined and created through thinking about code and drawing. 
Thank you. And you'll be having three pieces in the show as well. And we're excited for the input um, that you've chosen, at least the object to represent that inspiration does kind of pay tribute to that history of drawing in your ovoir. And we're coming up to the very end. And I was just wondering if you, either of you had any closing comments before we kind of do like a little fun activity we do with every guest. If I could just put in a little plug for the V&A collection, as you know, Abigail, before I finally left the museum, I built up the V&A's digital art collection over many years. But one of the works that we were very pleased to acquire was one of Casings, which is still on display actually in the museum. So if anyone is passing, you should go and have a look at it near the one of the exhibition halls, near one of the shops. It's been running almost continuously for probably six or seven years now, I guess. It's Process 18, which is um, in the same series as the works that, or some of the works at least that Casey Evans exhibited in the current show. Oh, wonderful. We'll make sure all of our guests here at Unit London are aware and we make sure that they know to go visit the VNA. Uh, since Douglas might not say it, but the V&A collection that he put together is just extraordinary. It is, I think, the strongest collection of the origin of this work in the world. And just to encourage people to, yeah. yeah. It, it, actually, before we get ending, do you want to, Douglas, actually expand on that? Because I think that's an amazing point that we've highlighted in your bio. But if you just want to quickly talk about the V&A as an inst- institution in your collection. Yeah, of course. Well, um, as I've often said in other talks, in fact, the V&A acquired its first computer-generated artworks as long ago as 1969. And they came into the museum collection as a result of that cybernetic serendipity show that we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast. Somebody in the museum had the wit to acquire a complete series of prints that were produced in connection with that show. But sadly, for a very long time afterwards, they didn't acquire very much. One or two works by Vera Molnar and Manfred Moore, for example, but not very much else until relatively modern times when I became involved. I kind of got a computing background as well as an art one. And um, I basically just went for it in the early 2000s and decided that really a museum like the V&A ought to have this new medium represented in its collections. And it was easier to do it then when very few other people were actively interested in it. So we were able to get works into the V&A collection and the artists were very glad to for them to be in the V&A collection at that time. It's different now. You know, we couldn't do the same thing now that we did a decade ago. Certainly for the likes of people like Vera Molnar and Mal- Manfred Moore, Casey, for that matter, because um, so many pe- more people now are interested in And I'm thrilled by that, of course. Very glad that it's happened. Yeah, it'll be very interesting in the coming years to see collection building as well as I think the collector base has been very expansive with NFTs, specifically in generative art of who's been able to collect. So it'll be very interesting how those make their way back into those institutional collections at some point. So that's extremely exciting. And we'll make sure the whole audience knows to visit the V&A, specifically see Casey's work since it has that direct relation to processing AT. Great. And perfect. So kind of what we do at the end of all of our podcasts is we ask a set of four questions to all of our guests. Um, it's the exact same questions, and we just ask for you to answer them in one word or one sentence. And they are purposely vague and ambiguous. So interpret as you may. And we'll kind of go, Douglas, if you want to be the first one to respond, and then we can go to Casey and kind of do it in that manner. But our first question is, what does in our code mean to you? Generative. Generative art. It's where it's at now. For me, that means in our in our minds, in our ways of thinking, just sharing ideas and ways of making meanings and structures with each other. 
Okay, our second question is also quite vague, is what inspires you in the space? I love to see the creativity that's going on in the space now. Now, I've seen some of it in the past, and it's just astonishing to see how it's grown, how many more people are now engaging with it through NFTs, through online, through all sorts of ways that weren't imagined 50 years ago. Similar for me, it's seeing a unique voice emerge. As we've discussed, people have been working in this area for over 60 years. So when you see something that you've never seen before, and you see a body of work by somebody that is just really charged and unique, that's the biggest thrill. Definitely. And our third question, what is one artist you'd love to own an NFT by? <laughs> Actually, she's not in your show, but it would have to be Vera Molnar for me. Hopefully she'll be in a future show because she's just such an important figure in the history of digital art and deserves to be recognized. As well. Truly. I actually don't think I can answer that one. <laughs> it is. It's actually been one of it's been one of the toughest questions, actually. And people have been very creative with it, as well as we leave like the word artist. We don't say alive or dead. So there's been quite some unique answers to it. If I'm right to have one on behalf of Casey, then I would say Casey Reese. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. And so our final question is: What technological advancements do you think the space needs? There's a whole issue, I think, around preservation and access over time, which I'm not sure has been totally resolved yet. You know, it's one thing to own the NFT. It's one thing to have a certificate, possibly have a, a file of some sort. But how you keep it accessible, I think, is going to be the crucial thing for me. I agree with that answer completely. To go down a different path, I think it's displays, screens. I mean, I've seen them shift so much over 30 years that I've been active in the space. But my dream is just to have this like roll of screen, like a, like a textile, and you basically just unroll it. You cut it to any arbitrary dimension that you want. It's sort of the thickness of a piece of wool, and it just displays what you need to display. I think that is that display technology moving from cathode ray tube, like big box machines, to LED walls, to the flat panels we have now, it's it's shifted in a way that's that's made this more accessible it's made it emerge but it's so unsatisfactory yeah all great answers and so thank you again both douglas and casey for joining us today on this episode on unit on chain and again just for the audience you can view um casey's work in our code and the exhibition here at unit london that runs from september 13th to october 16th as well as read Douglas Dodd's writing online and pick up a physical brochure here too. And again, thank you both. Thank you. Thanks, Abigail. Thanks, Douglas. Great to chat. Nice to see you again, Jason. Thank you for tuning into Unit on Chain, a podcast series from Unit London. Visit our generative art exhibition in our code at Unit London on display from September 13th to October 16th. You can find the transcript of this conversation on our blog at unitlondon.com. Subscribe to our podcast and tune in next week. We'll be talking to Tyler Hobbs about his background in art and computer science, his inspirations with a brand new work, One One Overflow, and his writing on generative art. Make sure to join AOI's Discord channel this Friday for a masterclass with Tyler Hobbs, Emily Ji, and Casey Reese for an exclusive look into the creative process. Find links in the description.